Christine reads the scripture, there's some context I want to help you hear about this passage. We, as I told you earlier, are on the end of a three-week series on what are we doing here fundamentally as a church. At the end of the day, here's what it's about. It's about Jesus, following him, learning about him, growing closer to him. That's what everything's about here. Secondly, it's about knowing that each and every individual person is a person of value and worth because they are, by definition, a child of God. But also that while we affirm the worth of each individual, we have to be less selfish and continue to expand our portrait to include more and more in the world around us. Today we come to this section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says some things that are just quite out hard, flat out hard to hear. Quite frankly, that's why I wanted to make sure the kids were out of the room. We don't read this passage to the kids very often because it's scary. It's scary for us. And it shocks us when we hear Jesus say such things. And I wanted you to understand, to be prepared for what you're about to hear. Listen with grace, but listen closely. Because Jesus obviously had hit a topic that mattered an awful lot to him. The disciple John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost all its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of God for the people of God. We say every Sunday, God, thanks be to God for the word of God. Some Sundays it's hard to be really thankful for what we hear. Today's one of those. Pretty hard scripture. Rather perplexing. 
We ask you to help us find our way through this passage, but far more importantly, find us way to the place where what we love is what you love and what we hate is what you hate. Because if we can ever start doing that, our lives would change and so would the world. So guide us and bless my words, our thoughts, and all that we do today to your glory in the name of Christ. I first heard Evo Phillips say this somewhere in the early 80s. He's the one I got it from, but I want you to hear what he had to say. He was talking, and he said this. Once I saw this guy in a bridge, and he was about to jump off the bridge. I told him, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. I asked him, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? A Protestant. Me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. Well, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or the Northern Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Back in the day, jokes about denominations were more prevalent and and, uh, more interesting, perhaps. There were were tons of them out there. Uh, You know, ones like, uh, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change. How many um, Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Six. One woman to replace the bulb while five men review the church lighting policy. How many United Church of Christ members does it take to change a light bulb? Eleven. One to change the light bulb and ten more to organize a covered dish supper that will follow the changing of the light bulb service. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? This one's dangerous. How many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? Five. One man to change a bulb and four wives to tell him how to do it. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? None. Lights will go on on and off at their predestined times. And you know you're waiting for it. How many United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? We choose to not make a statement either in favor or of or against the need for a light bulb. (laughs) However, if in your journey you have found a light bulb works for you, that is fine. You are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship to your light bulb and present it next month at our annual Light Bulb Sunday service in which we explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long-lived, and tinted, 
all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence through Jesus Christ. Indeed. We live at a time when probably folks tell fewer denominational jokes because, quite frankly, people really care less about denominations. We know that. We've known that for some time. People generally now aren't going to churches looking to see what the name is on the door. Few people move into Clarkston looking for the United Methodist Church because they're United Methodist or Episcopalian or Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist or whatever. They're looking for a church that fits their needs. I know because that's what people tell me. That's been our experience. But what also is true is the fact is few and fewer people are looking for church. Because over the generations, churches have spent an awful lot of time fighting among themselves over things they thought were critically important but mattered nothing to the rest of the world. And so people have started to no longer care about looking for a church because they haven't found one that really says anything about how to live their day-to-day life, about how to have a deep spiritual experience. Instead, they fight about things that they don't care about, like, do you wear robes? Do you... What kind of music do you listen to? What time of worship do you have? Those kinds of things. They've started to lump us all in together. They don't even know what the difference is between a United Methodist and a Baptist and a Lutheran. Quite frankly, they don't care. I'm here to tell you that I am old school enough to believe that it does matter that you know the theology of the place where you worship because the theology of where you worship gives you the the type of foundation by which you will face life. So it does matter. And yes, I am obviously biased. I believe it matters that you know that the clergy who lead you are theologically trained and credentialed. And they have people who supervise them to make sure we don't go off the rails too far and to make sure that we're effective in ministry. I think that does matter. But I also think that all too many times the church has fought about things and presented things as if they were so important that the world has finally figured out that's hogwash. A friend of mine was telling me about a district of United Methodist churches out east. I won't say where in particular. There are 84 churches in that district. 84 churches in that district. 43 of which have an average worship attendance of 20 or less. Most of those 23 churches are consistent of one family. To which I said, those aren't churches anymore. But I can also tell you this, and my friend didn't say this, but I've been in church all my life, and I can tell you what else is true about those 23 churches. They talk about each other. About why their church is better than that family over there on the holler. Over there across town. Because it's the nature of church life. And I can tell you, if you've reduced your church town to your own family, you've figured out how to kill off a church. Of course, there are some of us here in the room right now who are desperately looking for a church where none of our family goes to, So it doesn't work for us. But the truth is, churches, by definition, have a way of judging each other in ways that are ridiculous and offensive to God. Jesus encountered it here in this passage. Jesus has been struggling with disciples, and if you've been with me in this series, you know they keep thinking they've got it right, only to have it be revealed how wrong they have it. And today's no exception. The disciple John, whom Jesus loves, comes up to him and says, with pride, by the way, he's reporting in, this is a good thing, hey, Jesus, those guys over there, they were exercising people in your name, but we stopped them because they aren't one of us. 
to which Jesus goes. All right, wait a minute, John, let me get this right. Those people over there were using my name, which is another way of saying they believe in me. And they were making a difference in people's lives. They were healing them. They were exercising them. And that's a whole other conversation. But can we at least agree that if you exercise, you feel better after? Whatever that means, right? So that's what they're doing. So they're doing an effective ministry in my name. And you told them to stop because they're not one of us. That's what you're proud about? And you know, Jesus wept. You know, Jesus was just so frustrated. You think I care about whether or not they're a part of this group or that group or this group or that group or whether they uh, wear robes in worship or they like candles or don't like candles or worship inside or worship outside or whatever it is. You think I care about those things? I don't care about those things. They were changing people's lives in my name and you stopped them? Now, if you've been with me, you also know that just before this passage, Jesus... Again, frustrated over the disciples, said, I've got to show you guys what I'm talking about. And he put a child in their midst. Remember the children here just a few minutes ago? Imagine them. He'd already said, if you want to be the first in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to serve these kids. You're going to serve people like this. You're going to serve the little ones. Well, now let me tell you this. You think I'm upset about them? I wish you would cut off your arm. I wish you would dare to even... Gouge out your very eyes before you would do anything that would be a stumbling block before one of these little ones. And what you just did was a stumbling block. You said it's more important to fight among each other about who's doing what rather than giving glory to God when lives are changed. I wish you would absolutely keep hacking yourself to pieces every time you do something that stupid. So do you know why I had the kids go out of the room? I mean, does that not seem a little harsh to you from Jesus? I'm asking you the question, church. Wake up. Does that seem to you like a Jesus statement? Seems a little harsh? So here's, here's something you have to learn. When you're reading the Bible and you come across something that just really, what? This doesn't sound like Jesus. Ask yourself the question. Why doesn't it sound like Jesus? Well, fast forward, I'm going to suggest to you because it doesn't sound like anybody who has love or grace in their life. It sounds like somebody who's a lot of anger take over. Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, so if that's the case, then do you think Jesus really meant for the disciples to physically disable themselves? Well, here's your clue. By the time we get to the resurrection, there's no record of any of the apostles or disciples being physically disabled. So clearly he didn't mean it literally. So why did he say such a terrible thing? Because he was mad. Because this matters. You want to get angry with each other about all manner of things that you get upset about? You want to judge each other? You want to talk about each other over things that absolutely don't matter? Well, let me tell you what really angers God. Do something to hinder the faith life of a little one. Now we got something to be angry about. We've been getting mad over the wrong things. 
We've put our passions in things that at the end of the day don't matter. At the end of the day that what matters to Jesus here, he's saying to us is, what are you doing to not put stumbling blocks in front of the little ones in your lives? What are you doing instead to encourage them, to bless them, to protect them? To make sure they can grow in faith rather than not look at you and go, you got nothing I want. Who are the little ones in your life? Who are the ones that are little in your life? Some of you immediately jump to uh, several names because they're the children in your life. They're the ones that didn't get you enough sleep last night. They're the ones uh, you've been wrestling with and playing with and feeding and carting all over town. But there are other little ones too. Because little ones here doesn't mean just the young ones. It means the vulnerable ones. It means the ones who can't take care of themselves. It means the ones who have no voice. It means the one that the rest of the world discards. It means the ones who need you to look out for them because no one else is. Who are the little ones in your life? My first year at Duke, I was assigned to St. Matthew's United Methodist Church as a student intern. I spent a year there, and out of that I learned to do youth ministry, and I got a wife. It was a pretty good deal. Wasn't in the brochure, but I was glad to accept her. Thank you, honey, for accepting me. But the second year, I went to work at Murdoch Center in Butner, North Carolina. Murdoch Center, at that time, it was called a center for the profoundly and severely mentally retarded. And so I was assigned several wards where I would work with severely profound and mentally impaired children and, and young adults, and some of them weren't very young. Some of you know my history. You know that I have been raised with my brother Jim, who's seven years my senior, and the best gift of life to me in terms of knowing that the world is a normal place when someone in it isn't fully capable. Jim's a mentally impaired and, and, and a great guy. But I know because I have him, it makes me easier to walk into those kinds of situations. So I get that. But this was a tough room to walk into because so many people that I was working with were not only the staff, but they were folks who were so disabled that many of them were nonverbal, non-ambulatory, lying in bed, and non-responsive to a large extent. And that's who we were to minister to that entire summer. And you begin to discover that what for some people looks like a horror ward becomes a place of amazing grace. Because you begin to discover if you take the time to slow down and look in each bed and each pair of eyes. Each person has a personality, has a story to tell. And, and, you know, Billy is what I'll call him, was one of those guys. He was in the bed and he was pretty nonverbal, but the only thing the staff really knew about him was he loved Elvis hymns. So when they played the Elvis hymns, he would somehow be a little perkier. So a couple of weeks into my ministry there, I brought my guitar in, and you could consider that to be an act of, you know, diminishing return and abuse. Um, but I took my guitar, and I played and sang to him, you've got to walk that lonesome valley the way Elvis did. In my own mind, I sang it like Elvis did. And Billy lit up. I mean, his eyes lit up. And he started tapping and dancing the way in which he could to that song. 
And I've had a lot of holy moments in my life. I've been blessed to be with people in some pretty intimate moments where we've shared a lot of deep faith. No one more so than Billy. Billy's one of the ones who taught me that if you're not in ministry with the little ones, you're missing the point. And in that Butner institution at Murdoch, we, uh, we got together a choir, Mike Hightower and I, and uh, it was one of the many, less than ten, as high a functioning as we had in the wards, and they loved to sing, and they sang in our chapel service every Sunday, and, and they were a great choir. I mean, you guys are fantastic, but you can't meet their passion. You just can't do it. And, uh, and they sang their hearts out. And we, uh, we got together an opportunity to take some of those folks to community churches and, and share in their worship. What we didn't expect, naive as we were, is that some of the churches weren't quite comfortable once we arrived because they didn't realize the severity of some of the needs of some of the people we had with us. And that was just comforting to the congregations we served. I get it. But still, these children of God had come to sing for them. And some of those churches were a little concerned because they didn't check the fact that we were a cross-racial group. <laughs> and that bothered some. And I'm here to tell you, on those days, God smiled when they sang and wept when the church didn't respond. What are we doing? What are we doing as a church, capital C, and as a congregation, if we are not first and foremost putting front and center our compassion and care for the most vulnerable and little ones in our midst, whoever they might be, whether they be the children who just stood up here, innocent and eyes wide open, wondering what they were going to be taught and how they were going to be treated in this church, wondering what this God is about that we talk about and sing about, wondering what this God was going to let them know how deeply they were loved, but not just that, but how deeply they are called and equipped to make a difference in the world. But not just them. Who are the little ones in your life? The ones that you have power over because you're their boss or you're their supervisor or in some way the decisions you make affects their lives. Maybe they're the vulnerable ones who used to be the ones who were in charge of you, but now they've become your parents who are elderly and are challenged. Or maybe whoever they are, you know who they are. They're the little ones. And God is at least saying for them, please do me this favor and put them front and center in the way in which you love them and care for them. Because that's ultimately how the world will judge you. That's how you will be judged as a people of faith. It's not about how you care for the rich. It's not about how you welcome those that you would welcome anyway because they're like you. It's about how you care for the little ones in your midst. I've come to understand, quite frankly, this is one of those places where I think God says, just stop. Stop with your excuses. Stop with your busyness. Lay down all the reasons why those people can't serve you, or maybe they've hurt you in the past. Stop. And care for the little ones. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of them by the way you live or by the kind of religion you practice. I'm old enough to remember a time when we had leaders in our country tell us about the drug issue. Here's how, you take, here's how we're going to take on the drug issue in our country. Just stop. Well, you know why that didn't work? Because you can't just stop. 
If you're going to stop, you have to start something new. If I'm going to stop a behavior which is diminishing my life or the life of someone else, I need to take on something new to take the place of that thing I need to give up. Reuben Job writes about it this way in his book, Three Simple Rules. I mean, you want to talk about a book that can change your life, this is it. Can you get through that book? Reuben Job, Three Simple Rules. Here's what he says, if you don't have time for the whole book. Hint, hint. There are sermon notes in front of you. If you want to write down Reuben Job, Three Simple Rules, it wouldn't be the worst waste of your energy today. First rule, do no harm. (laughs) This is not rocket science. Jesus is saying to John, do no harm. Stop getting in the way of someone else who's helping someone else. Lay down your own conceit, your own sense of power, your own sense of rightness. Stop doing harm. Can you start a day just by thinking of who you're going to be with that day and at least say, God, help me when I'm with him not to do any harm? Just do that. Second rule. This is tough. Now hold on to me. It's going to be hard to make the transition. First, do no harm. Second one, do good. At the end of the day... Can you decide, instead of judging those people over there, those little ones, the vulnerable ones, can you just figure out what can you do to do good for them in the name of Christ? Selfishly, no. Selflessly, yes. What can you do that's good for them? Third rule, can you keep up? Love God. Love God by the way in which you treat them. Love God through them. Love God every time you're around them, first and foremost. That's it. And if you and I were to start doing those three things, those three buildings alone, do you understand the way your life would change? Do you understand the way you would send ripples out into the world and change lives? Do you understand? The world was not talk about church, but they would flock to be the church that can live in such a fashion. We can't pretend that our actions don't affect others, and yes, it is also true, I get it. You aren't in control of what some people will take to and think about and do as a result of what you do. I understand that, and sometimes you're going to hurt somebody else just because it's what happens. And every one of us in this room have hurt little ones. Let's just be honest about it. Let's not pretend like we can't confess that, but that's the good news is we can confess it. We can lay it down today. God, I'm sorry for when I've hurt the little ones. Don't make me do it again. Let me stop. For God's sake, stop. Well, let me do something different. Henry Nouwen is one of my spiritual heroes. He's that for millions. It's not like I'm unique. He was a great theologian and a writer, and he's passed away. And two of his books continue to guide my life yet today. But I will tell you why I love Henry Nouwen and why he validated everything he said to me. Henry Nouwen was a renowned theologian and 
and he taught at Divinity School at Harvard, and he was a lecturer around the world. He could have lived out his life doing literally anything, being anywhere he wanted to be. For the last 10 years of his life, he chose, he chose to go and be a part of a community in Canada for the physically and mentally disabled. And he became their chaplain. He didn't do so to look good, and he didn't do it because he had pity on those people. He did because they saw in them Christ. And he wanted to learn from them how to live humbly and to serve with joy and to be with Christ. Thinking of those, here's what he said. Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? These are the real questions. I must trust that the little bit of love that I sow now will bear many fruits here in this world and the life to come. Now, I happen to know Henry Nowen began to learn what, Je- what love was because he knew Jesus. But you notice he doesn't use a lot of Jesus language in here. Because when you're overflowing with Jesus, you don't always have to use his name for his love to change people's lives. So my question to you this week, my ask of you this week, can you just do this? Can you just stop? And for a few moments each day, consider who you're going to be with, what you're going to be about, and do these simple things. Do no harm. Do good. Live peaceably with others, as the way Paul said it. And love God. And then watch as the kingdom of God flows around you and through you. Because it is undeniable that it will happen. To God be the glory. Amen.